You're listening to RTE Lyric Live. If there's one composer whose music sums up the sophistication and seriousness of the late 19th century, for me, it has to be Johannes Brahms. We just heard a snatch of his fourth symphony there. A brilliantly talented North German, born in Hamburg in 1833, Brahms was one of those composers who seemed to have swept all before him. When he was just 20, he paid a visit to the Schumanns in Düsseldorf, and sitting there hearing Brahms play his own compositions at the piano, the great Robert Schumann said that it was as if this brilliant newcomer had sprung like Minerva, fully armed from the head of the son of Cronus. At last Schumann could see someone for the next generation who would take music forward. In his own maturity, Brahms crisscrossed the continent, playing and conducting his own compositions, amassing honours and awards, and showing the way for younger composers, almost to a problematic degree. Around 1890, one Wilhelm Tappert talked about the Brahms fog, which had descended over all the major conservatoires, so much so that everyone was enveloped by Brahms's music, and it was hard to find their way out. The astonishing thing about Brahms is how he could make so much out of so little, like the unforgettable melody at the start of that fourth symphony, fashioned out of nothing more than a chain of descending thirds.
As I said, Brahms was a North German, Hamburg born and bred, and by his late twenties, he was well established enough to make his first visit to Vienna. A few well placed introductions from Clara Schumann, the equally brilliant wife of Robert, ensured that Brahms hit it off in all the right places. And within a decade, Brahms had worked his way into the heart of the Viennese musical establishment. The key person to win over there was the influential Eduard Hanslick, fearsome critic of the new free press newspaper for over 40 years, and someone who could make and destroy reputations with a stroke of his pen. There was a real power struggle going on at the time between the merits of classic-orientated music and the more florid imaginings of a Richard Wagner, but Brahms had no interest in being part of any of that. He was a straightforward professional musician, not interested in blowing his own trumpet, and a man who was modest to a fault. I'm not sure how he get on in today's Instagram age of relentless self-promotion. Brahms didn't even like going to concerts of his own compositions, saying that he'd prefer to hear music by better composers. Well, the chance to do exactly that came early in 1875, when he sat on the panel of a music competition specifically set up to give grants to talented but poor composers from the outer reaches of the Austrian Empire, places such as Moravia and Bohemia. That's how Brahms first came across the music of one applicant whose biog read like this. Anton Dvorak of Prague, 33 years old, music teacher, completely without means. He has submitted 15 compositions, among them symphonies and overtures for full orchestra, which display an undoubted talent, but in a way which as yet remains formless and unbridled. Well, this young Dvorak struck gold, so to speak. He won a state grant of 400 gulden and went on to bag the prize two more times over the next three years. Dvorak's great asset was his personality, musical and otherwise. One description sums him up as a strapping youth with sparkling eyes, a springy step, and at all times a song on his lips. Brahms was so taken by Dvorak's music that he put in a good word for him to his prestigious publisher Zimbrock, a significant leg up for a young unknown from the fringes of empire. So it's a shame then that another member of the jury, the aforementioned Eduard Hanslick, went on to rain on Dvorak's parade by writing, It would be advantageous for your things to become known beyond your narrow Czech fatherland, which in any case does not do much for you. Hanslick did maybe have a point there. Prague was a backwater at that time, but the implication that the Czechs were inferior to the Austrians in some way touched a raw nerve. Dvorak's Moravian duets might not be Mozart, for sure, but the value of folk-like music like this just went over Hanslick's head.
Sure enough, the publisher Zimbrock was impressed by Brahms's top tip, and commissioned this Dvorak to write a set of Slavonic dances, which turned out to be a gold mine for both composer and publisher. A successful professional partnership was up and running, although one not without its clashes along the way. Publishers are interested in making money, of course, but the problem really was that Zimrock, who was based up in Berlin, had no interest in getting behind Dvorak as a serious composer. Dvorak wanted to write a new D minor symphony, his seventh, but Zimrock didn't want to pay for it. Write me two volumes of Slavonic dances for four hands, Zimrock wrote to Dvorak. It will be much simpler for you than some symphony which comes over as more than a little patronising. And then there was the whole business about Dvorak's national identity. He wanted his Christian name to appear in print, not as the Germanic Anton, but in its Czech form as Antonine, or at the very least abbreviated to Ant. It seems that Zimrock didn't take him seriously, because Dvorak wrote back, Do not laugh at my Czech brothers, and do not pity me either. What I asked of you was only a wish, and if you cannot fulfil it, I am justified in seeing in it a lack of goodwill on your part. I simply wanted to say to you that an artist also has his country in which he must place his staunch faith, and for which he must have a fervent heart. For Dvorak, his Czech identity was no laughing matter. This was serious. Going back to the relationship between Dvorak and Brahms, although the two men came from very different backgrounds, from the musical point of view, it's striking how much they had in common. Even back in his Hamburg days, Brahms had really admired the music he'd heard from Bohemia and Hungary, and coming across Dvorak's music was a significant discovery. This Czech composer, who wasn't especially well-read or that versed in the music of other composers, somehow had an instinctive knack for writing tunes. As Brahms said, he is never at a loss for an idea like the rest of us. Brahms did, though, offer to lend Dvorak a hand in some of the finer points of being a composer, writing tentatively, You write somewhat hurriedly. When you fill in the necessary sharps and flats, look rather more closely at the notes themselves and at the part writing, etc., well-meant and kindly, 
practical advice from one colleague to another. The music of Dvorak and Brahms even shared space in the same programme. In the last month of his life, in a concert in Vienna's Musikverein, Brahms heard his fourth symphony being played alongside Dvorak's cello concerto, a work about which Brahms had once wistfully said, If I had known that it was possible to write a cello concerto like that, I would have done it years ago. But for Brahms, time was now running out. He had a serious liver disorder, and as it turned out, he was in the final month of his life. He died on the 3rd of April 1897, and at his funeral ceremony on the 6th, Vienna saw one of the grandest funeral ceremonies ever, with dignitaries and colleagues travelling from all over Europe to pay their respects. And following along behind the coffin, as one of twelve torchbearers, was Antonin Dvorak. Still with many musical adventures ahead of him, but for the moment grateful for the initial encouragement and consistent support of his friend and senior colleague. After all, the two men had so much in common. Like brothers from a different mother, they both believed in the power of melody and the role of music to be beautiful.
You're listening to RTE Lyric Live 